Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, compassionate and non-dualistic faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay. I'm joined uh, by Sue Wilton and Peter Cat. Thank you for your time as always, Sue and Peter. It's great to be here. Thanks, Dom. Um, and uh, we do have a very special guest um, joining us on the podcast today. Just before we introduce him, we should mention the On The Way Facebook page is up and running. Uh, if you haven't gone and liked that yet, make sure you do search for... Uh, I think it's on the way. St. John's will bring that up. Is that correct? So you run, you run the Facebook page, don't you? <laughs> this is Sue's responsibility. <laughs> it has on the way anyway. So mm. the on the way face podcast. On the way podcast. You'll track it we'll down. We'll find it. There might be a few others there, but keep scrolling and you'll see you'll see something pop up with us sooner or later. And please do send in any questions you'd like answered. We might do a QA and a episode potentially at some stage down the track, um, any guests you'd like us to get yeah, on. We'd love to have our ideas for, for guests or people that you know, if you're a Queenslander, if you know we're in town, yeah. or just suggestions um, for new topics. We'd yeah, love completely. to hear from you. Absolutely. Um, and also, if you uh, have some spare time, we wouldn't uh, mind you leaving a quick review on, on the Ways iTunes page as well. Um, you can just leave a, a rating there and maybe some thoughts if you, if you feel that way inclined. Uh, today, though, we have a returning guest to the On The Way podcast, someone who joined us for one of our first conversations, um, returning this time without Nora, just on his own, is uh, Dave Andrews, an author, speaker, interfaith worker, among many other things. What, what, how do you introduce yourself, Dave? What do you say you are? Oh, I introduce myself as a follower of Jesus or a community worker. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Well, um, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come back on the podcast. It's good to have you uh, back a second time. And today we are, uh, I guess the scope of today's conversation relates to a lot of your work surrounding the Beatitudes, which um, is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous things, obviously, Jesus did in his ministry. And using some of the insights from that as a framework for a different way to be in the world. So I suppose from the outset, that's worth making clear. This isn't a, a Bible study podcast where we're just unpacking a verse and just debating what it might mean theologically. The, the point of this is quite practical, quite grounded for people of whatever faith or no faith, a different way to be in the world. Um, uh, and maybe, maybe that's a good place to start, is what do you think, uh, if, if you could say it, you know, somewhat concisely, Dave, what do you think the problem with the way many people are in the world currently is? I think uh, the difficulty is that we're confronted with a world that we know is characterised by uh, violence um, that's oppressive and exploitative. But the problem is, for many of us who care about that, is that the way we react to that actually doesn't transform it. Mm. Uh, it doesn't change it. Uh, we'll go out in the streets, we'll protest, but our own anger reflects and reinforces the anger that we oppose. We'll go, we'll get organised and we'll vote um, for a change of government, but the government will maintain the kind of policies that uh, we have opposed. So one of my major concerns, which we're going to talk about today, is how can we engage the world as it is in a way that can be authentically transformative? Mm. Because many good people who want to work for change are profoundly discouraged with their efforts to bring about change, not making any significant difference. And mm. I think... Uh, the gospel is all about, and specifically uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is about Jesus giving us a framework for profound and significant change of the status quo. Uh, in your book, Plan B, which which touches on the Beatitudes, um, you do mention uh, that, that you've 
come to the conclusion that um, it's very hard, if not impossible, to change other people. That's that's a bit of a futile mission to be trying to change other people. And the task is to change ourselves and our way of being in the world. And that's how we bring about change by changing ourselves. Um and the Beatitudes you do use uh, as a framework for this, I think you describe it as basic practical operating principles for how we can be in the world, uh, a, a potential framework for us to shape our whole lives by, really. Um, so this isn't about doctrine. It is very grounded, real ways to be in the world. For people who are maybe not of a Christian background, um, or even are, but haven't come across the Beatitudes, because it is, even in the Christian faith, it's not heavily emphasized. Um, can you give us some background on what the Beatitudes Actually, what are we talking about with this this word? Okay, so the Beatitudes are the introduction to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Um, and they go something like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed uh, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be comforted. Uh, uh, satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those that are peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So there, it's an eightfold statement about what is really blessed or what is really good. Um, and it's an affirmation of a way of being in the world that can bring something of heaven to earth. Mm. It is um, maybe a place we, we should start on this uh, because the I guess the blessed term and the fact Jesus spoke this, you know, those two things together might make people think this is just confined to if you believe in the Christian God, then this matters. But but to you, the application of this is much wider than one religion, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I, I think... In Australia, if we're going to translate uh, the word blessed, we could say good on you. Mm. Good on you when you're not preoccupied with wealth, but you actually enter into solidarity with the poor. Good on you when you get angry about injustice, but you never get aggressive. Good on you when you actually um, uh, want to express that anger in creative and constructive ways. So I think for an Aussie audience, um, the word good on you is actually very close to what it means to be blessed. Interesting. Um, have you done much work on this with people of other faiths or no faiths? Yes, I have. Um, I mean, uh, I've worked with Buddhists who I've introduced uh, this framework to as the uh, the Eightfold Path of Jesus, uh, with Muslims who uh, I've introduced this to as the uh, Sharia of Isa, and with uh, skeptics uh, down at the Red Brick Hotel in Wollongabba as the the radical personal political revolution of Jesus. Mm. Um, and I think what's great about this framework is it's accessible to all people of faith and none. In fact, when I launched my books on the Beatitudes, I invited a Muslim friend of mine, Nora Amat, to launch the books. And uh, she said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll launch them. Uh, and when she got up at the launch of my books, she was in a hijab and she said, you might think it's strange that a Muslim woman is launching these books by a Christian um, on Jesus. But I, I said to Dave, I'll do this. I know Jesus. We believe in Jesus. Um, uh, you have to believe in Jesus to be a Muslim. But she said, I didn't know what I was talking about until I read these books. Mm. And then when I was confronted 
with what Jesus was calling us to, I now have come to this position, and I can quote her, she says this publicly, that I can only be a true Muslim if I follow the Beatitudes of Jesus, because this is the spiritual revolution that mm. Allah is actually calling us to. Mm. I think um, we, we've spoken a bit on this podcast before, and this is part of the reason it's called the On The Way podcast, that the early Christians weren't called Christians, but followers of the way. Exactly. Um, and the way we are talking about here, I suppose, is framed by the Beatitudes. It is, it is a way of life that is different to the way of life we see most people living in. Um, you, you describe it in the book as there being a plan A that the world has followed for some time. The plan A has let us down and plan B is what I guess you offer, but Jesus offered 2000 years ago as an alternative. Yep. Um, we will go through as this podcast uh, develops, I guess, the, the eight uh, stages of the framework and, and touch a bit on them. Um, before, we, before we do that, I just want to touch briefly on the Beatitudes and why they don't have much relevancy in the faith they belong to, in the Christian faith, why are they not spoken about much? Why do you think they sort of get relegated behind, you know, uh, the, all the various creeds and whatever else? Why is this not a this? This feels like when you read it, it feels like it should be the almost the, on the banner of Christianity, the Beatitudes. Why isn't it? I think there's many reasons for that, but my own view is that the Beatitudes are very confronting. They challenge the the very um, assumptions uh, of our our world and the way that we live and so it's very uncomfortable for us to be confronted with this Mm. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's easier for us to um, frame our engagement with the world according to the Ten Commandments um, uh, rather than it is to frame it in terms of the Beatitudes you know it's easier to uh, uh, quote Moses um, than it is to engage with Jesus. Mm. Jesus' uh, words are far more confronting. Um, You can't go to war if you take the words of Jesus seriously. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, for they alone, in brackets, can be claimed to be the children of of God. There are many people who want to go to war Mm. um, for their own vested interests in our society, uh, but the Beatitudes challenges that. And that's one of the reasons we prefer to just print the Beatitudes on postcards and send them out as kind of um, uh, uh, images of heaven than to see them as a way of life that challenges violence in the world. The most, uh, the time that they're most often read in church is at funerals, so they're safe to read about the dead rather than the living. Mm. Um, so it, I think it's very telling. And uh, the whole idea of uh, blessed can also be interpreted as happy or most happy. And I think that points us to it being something to do with it being a way of living because, um, say, Aristotle said that when you're truly happy, your true happiness is to to be found in finding your true self Mm. and being that person. So it's not about fun happy but as in that deep sense of contentedness Mm. so you could read blessed are as the most content of all people are the peacemakers wow yeah the most content of all people are the poor in spirit so it it comes down to uh, a transformed way of living and i think that's that's talks to spirituality as well yeah and that's a very important point because you can read blessed are thee and and I, I think i did for many years um 
you know, in, in some Christian, um, with, a, with a certain Christian lens. And it indicates if you do these things, while they might be unpleasant now, you will receive a reward for what you've done in the afterlife. Is kind of, I think, a, a base reading of blessed are the peacemakers. If you make peace, you'll get, I don't know, you'll get seconds at the heaven cafeteria or something like that. You'll, you'll get some reward after the event rather than being like that being its own reward would that be accurate Dave? Well I think the thing to notice is the the first beatitude and the second and last beatitude Mm. use the present tense blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven it's actually affirming is if we live this way of life Mm. we can experience not completely but partially and significantly and meaningfully something of heaven on earth here and now. Yeah. And in fact, all the all of the Beatitudes are divided into two. And the second part of each of the Beatitudes is talking about what that would be like. It would be like a world where um, the merciful receive mercy, where those who act of advocate for peace are not uh, despised but are honoured as sons and daughters of God where people of a pure heart regardless of their religion will be able to see God in the way that life is lived out so the second part of the Beatitudes actually envisages what heaven would be like on earth where the hungry are fulfilled Uh, for those who are hungry for righteousness will be fulfilled where That's the way of life that we can incarnate or embody here and now. That's the emphasis of these. It's, uh, it is one of those, I guess, parts of, of Jesus' ministry where if you do read it and engage with it, you come face to face with the political Jesus, the rebel Jesus, who often is sort of no. glossed over by much of the church for the, you know, the halo around the head, hands out to the side, ascending into heaven, Jesus. Um, and, and I suppose the reason that that is often glossed over is because as you said, it's very challenging. And when you do read these Beatitudes, I certainly know as someone of a um, Western background, I, I see how often I fall on the other side of what, you know, to, to use your translation, Peter, the most content are. I, I fall on, when he says, blessed are these people, I'm the other people um, to, to that. Do you think that, so do you think that's probably why maybe this is glossed over a bit because it is so profoundly challenging to our ingrained ways of living? Oh, yeah, look, I, I think it is profoundly challenging. I think they are, a, um, in some ways, you can also say that this is a way of being. They're casting a vision um, for this is the way I would wish to be uh, that is alternative to the way that we, our default of operating often as human beings and certainly in society, the default ways um, that we we go back to ways of, of violence and, and colonising one another and, and uh, abuses of power. And this is turning and saying, look, Imagine this. Imagine if it could be this other way of being. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Uh, but it, it is hugely challenging, and mm. uh, y- you cannot do it without doing the deep work with yourself. You, you've got to let them interrogate you. And if you know, I guess we've just come past New Year's, and you, we sit there with New Year's resolutions, and we all know the ones. You know, the ones that say, "I'm going to go and and go for a run more often this week, this year," and I'm going to, you know, get out there or go to the gym. You know, they're easy tick the box ones. But the ones that are things like. I'm going to be kind to that person that I can't stand. Mm. They're a heck of a lot more challenging. And these are in that category of the things that must transform us, that we have have to open ourselves up to Mm. um, and do that deep work with, which is why they're harder than the Ten Commandments, Mm. which were more in the tick the box kind of, do not murder, do not steal. 
Um, it is it is interesting though because I think there's a. Firstly, I should comment that I find the going for the run once a week this year. That's also quite a hard one. That's not as easy to tick the box <laughs> for me personally. But but because these are so challenging, I guess they sometimes seem they can almost be lost um, as too idealistic. You know, it's like sure, all of that would be nice if if we could you know uh, identify with the poor, you know, and 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 live in the way that Jesus commands or doesn't command, but suggests in these this eight uh, piece framework. But it can be. It can seem unrealistic, ambitious, idealistic, um, but Dave, you think this is this is not lost in in idealism. You think this is very practically doable as a way to live. I think these are the doable ideals of Jesus. I think uh, they're ideals that can be lived out in the real world. Now we all believe that God is good and that God has grace that he extends towards us that actually can nurture and encourage and energize us uh, and through that kind of uh, dynamic uh, we are empowered to actually take on these challenges and uh, um, and actually um, try to embody these kind of ideals in our lives so we're not saying we do this mm. on our own but I believe that we can do these things. And um, I think it's a, it's a very strange view of God to suggest that God is asking us to do things that we can't do. I mean, I think if God is a good God, then God is going to ask us to do the things that we can do yeah. that are in fact going to be the very best for us, the things that will make us feel blessed. And this is Jesus' list of those things that he suggests will actually bring the best out of us individually and collectively as human beings. Before we uh, do get into to the eight um, specific Beatitudes, um, I think a, a, an interesting story you told, we've just had lunch before recording the podcast, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this story up. You said your, your father, who was a preacher once, asked you what he should preach on this week. And um, I thought your response to that was a really helpful framework for, for this, if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah, so my father was a pastor. He taught homiletics, which is preaching at a uh, uh, theological college. And he used to love preaching. And he would often ask me, what do you want me to preach on next week? And he'd get very excited about any suggestion and disappear into his study and you know read the Hebrew and the Greek and get ready uh, to preach on Sunday. And uh, I can remember this day he asked me, what do you think I should preach on next and I said, Dad, you really don't want to know what I think. And he said, no, go on, son, tell me. And I said, Dad, I think you should stop preaching altogether. He just about died. I said, the reality is most of us know enough. It's time for us to start practicing what we know. And we could just start with these eightfold path of Jesus and mm. try to take one of these steps forward and find a way of supporting each other in making the steps because the, the revolution of Jesus is not in quoting scripture but actually practicing uh, the principles of Jesus. I had a very dear friend who um, was new to the church and um, was very excited about being in the church, but got, came to me one day and said, you know, I, I keep hearing the same sermon over and over again. People are telling me I just need to um, be forgiven and I'm saved by grace, trust in Jesus, trust in his death. And, and I keep saying I'm saved by grace, that's fine, but what now? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And it was an honest question from her. What now? Because And, and here we have in the Beatitudes a very clear what now. Um, and yet we don't always we, we spend time on the preaching. Mm. I think it's, I, I think the the faith became over spiritualized and Jesus became over spiritualized. Yeah. I think I think that was the, what destroyed it. 
that Jesus became a heavenly being who masqueraded as a human being. I think that that's sort of some of the subtext of the way the faith has understood Jesus, that which made him exceptional, which he is in another level, but made him so exceptional that he wasn't really like us. Yes. And that then the faith got cast uh, by the power structures, for whom it was very inconvenient to have it talking about this life, got cast into the future as the heavenly stuff. And so we completely, really took the faith out of life. And so it became focused on heaven. And I think Western Christianity particularly has bought that hook, line and sinker and markets it as get get your ticket to heaven and it's all about <coughs> reserving your spot mm. and that that what happens here happens here and if you're lucky to be rich that's fine if you're not well too bad so sad it'll be you'll make it up in the afterlife but i think the jesus well the jesus that i know was actually interested in completely obverse of that he taught about what it is to live now what it is to be transformed here, and that heaven will look after itself. And the Beatitudes, if we hear them in that light, are speaking about what it is to live now, as is the Lord's Prayer. You know, Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and Peter, I, I, I think it's intriguing that one of the most significant people in the 20th century who restored the relevance of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to us was not a Christian but a Hindu because mm-hmm. he wasn't he wasn't dazzled by the divinity of Jesus to such an extent that he couldn't see the human Jesus mm-hmm. who yep. embodied the gospel the yep. good news in a way that was really relevant to the personal and political struggles uh, of our times absolutely mm-hmm. I agree well, let's let's look at this this framework then for a different way of being. We'll start with the first one, which you you mentioned it, uh, the way you interpret this first one sort of sets up the framework for all of them in a sense. I mean, if you read one gospel, it's um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another gospel, it's much more directly talking about the poor. What are your thoughts? So, can, can firstly, what is the maybe repeat what the the first one? So, is. the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Now, often this is uh, interpreted, blessed are the poor of spirit. Blessed are those that feel inadequate because God cares for them and God will empower them. Now, is that true? Yes, I believe it's true. But I don't think that that's the point Jesus is making here. It's clear in Luke's version, Jesus is concerned about the poor, the real poor, the people who struggle to survive. And I believe what he's saying here in Matthew is blessed are you, when you identify with the poor, the people who are really poor in spirit, like he did in uh, Nazareth, where he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news for the poor. Mm. And I think the Beatitudes start with Jesus saying, you know, if you want to be a part of my revolution, the blessed revolution, uh, that will bring about profound transformation. It begins by being open to a spirit of compassion that will enable you to identify in the spirit with the poor, alongside them as one of them, and engage 
in their struggle with sincere solidarity. And that's where the revolution begins. I think uh, you use a phrase in your book that um, the p- people and churches have become good at identifying the poor. They can identify the poor people. But they not d- identify with the poor. Yeah. Can, yeah, can you explain right. what the difference between identifying the poor and identifying with the poor? How would you sum up that difference? I think it's easy to identify the poor from a distance. But the whole of the emphasis of the scripture is that in Jesus, God comes among us and dwells among us. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. And it begins by uh, calling us to open ourselves to the spirit, to enter into compassion uh, with the poor around us. And we can't do that at a distance. We have to enter into that uh, seriously, authentically, alongside the people around about us who are struggling by entering into their struggles. And I suppose already then, in the first Beatitude, we're coming up with we're coming up against a very inherently countercultural message. Oh, absolutely. Um, because because totally. it is, you know, as much as that even sounds like a nice ideal, most people still yearn for comfort, you know, security, a bigger house, nicer holidays. These are, you know, these th- things that that you say. I think you just at the lunch we were having, you mentioned we are addicts to these things, um, and so to identify with the poor. Um, that that requires uh, an enormous transformation, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it does. And so, what I'm actually uh, uh, suggesting is that that uh, uh, for many Christians who believe becoming a Christian is about being converted, I would say following the uh, the teachings of Jesus means that we need to be willing to be converted again and again and again. So constantly, we have to challenge our default responses that are not Christ-like. And we need to be open to actually being so filled with the spirit of compassion that we actually critically reflect on our default positions and we choose to sincerely uh, embrace uh, genuine solidarity with our brothers and sisters who struggle. So what might it look like to identify with the poor practically? What might that look like? Well, uh, for me, when I was 20 years old, it meant selling everything I had, giving it away and going to India to work with the poor and then working in the slums alongside the poor. But um, not everybody has to do that. Um, um, and, uh, uh, but what that means for me now that I'm back in Australia is in my neighbourhood, that means I look out for the people who are most marginalised, which in my neighbourhood include Aboriginal people who are still treated with disregard in their own country, uh, uh, re- uh, ab- uh, refugees and people seeking asylum who are treated as criminals instead of as victims. Uh, it means identifying with people in boarding houses and hostels who've come out of institutions but are as isolated in their boarding houses and hostels as they would be in the hospitals or prisons from which they come. And it means uh, befriending those people so that I know their faces, I know their names, I know their stories. Mm. You can't say you identify with the poor unless you know their names. It means that these people are your friends and you enter into their story and you enter into their journey of life alongside them as genuine friends. And, and you seek to make a difference for them, with them. One of the seductions the church has fallen to is we think we have to look after the poor and that then um, keeps them poor. You know, if the church and church and, and, and other groups in society, if all they do is feed the poor, then they are part of the problem because they're really propping up the system of injustice. So identifying with the poor is being so moved 
by their plight that you want to overcome it. Mm. So it means that you become radically obsessed with overturning the unjust structures that um, keep people poor. Um, our, our system at the moment uh, treats unemployed people as if they're all bludgers and yet the system itself requires to have something like 5 or 6% unemployment otherwise the system falls over. So we have this stru structured way of keeping people poor and then punishing them for it as, and treating, treating them as if it's their fault. So solidarity with the poor then means saying, well, no, that's not true. These are good people made in the image of God and we are working with them to make a difference. But you do have to know them. Mm. It's like the, 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 uh, the rough sleepers who sleep on the precinct, we know all their names. Yeah. And we know their stories and we know their complexities. Um, and it's the only way that we can actually begin to make a difference for them. And I think too, when when you do that, you become aware of where you are complicit in your own way of functioning yeah, in exactly. in the system. Absolutely. Uh, so mm. so yeah. as you reflect on that, and then but that that takes you to that deeper spirituality level too. That as you, um, I certainly didn't manage like Dave to at twenty sell everything and 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 move to India. Um, but I think where part of this is as you as you work with alongside people you you realize yep these are the parts of the system that are causing this this is where i am participating in that same system that helps to cause that so then that causes some more reflection and you may not be able you may struggle to give it all up at once all of those patterns i mean it's very hard to swim against the stream but i think that's where we got for me i find god very gracious is that over time you find little bits and little bits at a time you, you find mm. it able to some of those attachments that you have to things you can let go and if if you are self-reflective at all most of us will be aware of where they still sit in you where the things are that you are still addicted to where are the things that you're hanging on to um and, and but I, I don't think you know that this is a this is a slow process and it's a prayerful process but it's a both end always you you both identify with by by getting to know people actually hearing their life story walking with them recognizing how systemic injustice is playing out in your society but you're also looking at your own complicity and where your own unhealthy attachments are that are keeping you from being free because you will be truly content if you can be yeah. free of those attachments I know um, uh, when, I think uh, it was Jim Shermer on the podcast um, a few, or sometime last year, he spoke about the realization he had that Jesus didn't just feed the poor. He didn't run a food van for the poor, but he ate with the poor and on occasion let the, four p uh, let the poor feed him. That it was an engagement with them as equals among them rather than just the person who rocks up at 4 p.m. and sets up a food table and then at 6 p.m. heads home to his house. It was a, it was a, an equality with and a living alongside. Um, and, you know, as I say that, I realize how incredibly terrifying the teachings of Jesus are because, because as much as I can agree that that sounds like the way forward for humanity, I mean, my gosh, who, like that, that is such a challenging, such a profoundly challenging thing to even even think about doing for a night let alone a lifetime um that's why the cross is a symbol for christianity it's it's calling for an excruciating <laughs> transformation it's not pain-free in fact in fact the next beatitude yeah is blessed are those that mourn mm. so so it's actually saying if you identify with the poor in spirit and enter into their struggle alongside them authentically 
then you will immerse yourself in their pain. Their pain will become yours and you will struggle with the uh, the pain of that. Um, now, the word we use for compassion is very soft and kind of almost romanticised. But literally, compassion means with passion pain, mm. to enter into pain with. And when we uh, identify with the poor in spirit and enter into their struggle and their struggle becomes ours, then we enter into the pain of it all. Um, like um, Dorothy um, uh, Day says, um, love is a harsh and terrible thing. I mean, we can't romanticize this. Jesus is saying, if you do enter genuine uh, solidarity, as you're saying, it's not, it's not an easy, frivolous thing. It is a profoundly confronting thing to realize our own complicity, as people are saying, in the suffering of others. The Greek, the Greek word for compassion is is one of my favourite of all all words, and it's splagnizomai, yes. which means to have your guts twisted, wrenched, <laughs> wrenched. Yes, to be moved, so deeply moved that your guts are twisted. Yes, that's right. And why why would somebody pick that over an air conditioned four bedroom house? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> because they want to be a follower of the way, and they want to be a person who experienced the deepest form of contentment. Mm. Well, and I suppose that's the that is one of the illusions to to lift mm. back of the yep. four bedroom air conditioned house yep. is that while it feels comfortable, I mean there is there is a it's anaesthetizing yes yeah rather than, yeah and 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 I think people in that who who do live comfortably I, I remember being in Queenstown with on a family holiday um uh, a few about six months ago and there's this very high class steakhouse in Queenstown the sort of thing I think they have a multi hundred dollar steak on the menu at this particular steakhouse the sort of thing where the waiter gives you the whole backstory of the cow before you order your steak and we were, I was looking around the restaurant and it was full of people who I imagine were business people in suits you know they're maybe on a ski holiday and I couldn't help but think how um, unhappy everybody in this place looked this is the wealthiest of the wealthy in many respects especially with some of the wines they were ordering and and things like that and but there is there is an undeniable um staleness to to that way of living and, and do you is that kind of what the, the the deepest form of contentment you're talking about is is that well there might be these these struggles these uh, discomforts that you will discover a richer contentment here than you ever could there. Yeah, and you'll find your deepest, truest self and in that process will realise that you are where you're meant to be and you'll feel fulfilled, which is, again, a, a consequence of, of living into the Beatitudes. Mm. You will be filled. You will be fulfilled. You'll actually find your sense of purpose and... We know that for human beings, meaning is actually far more important than anything else. And our culture has taught us that you can buy meaning, in a sense, through luxury and, and through retail therapy and all of that sort of stuff. And, and people know that, from that, that it is addictive behaviour, that they, they have the thrill of the purchase, and then it ceases to have meaning. Because it didn't have any, it, it promised something it couldn't deliver. Whereas, the way, <coughs> the way offers us the deepest sense of fulfilment and meaning that is possible, because it is the way of God. So we have blessed are those who identify with the poor, blessed are those who mourn. What's the the third one? Blessed are the meek. 
Now, this is an interesting phrase because um, in the English language, we often think of meek or being a synonym for weak. Um, but uh, the backstory for this word that's used here for meek is is um, is that it's a, it's a word that's used for a stallion that has now been domesticated, which means it's anything but weak, but it's got all this visceral energy and power that can be unleashed, but it's not out of control. It's um, And so what I think Jesus is saying here is this. You need to identify with the poor in spirit, enter into their pain empathically, uh, get angry about the injustice that causes this suffering, but never get aggressive. So it's about exercising rage um, with restraint so that you you get mad about um, the pain that's imposed on vulnerable people through the system the way it is. Um, But as a meek person, you get angry but not aggressive. You channel the rage creatively and constructively. So uh, the anger doesn't overcome you. You use your anger to motivate you to work constructively to deal with the the causes of the pain of the people that you've come to know and love, that you've come to feel for yourself. That's mm. what the call is to be meek. So h- how do you identify when your anger becomes aggressive and like what's the what i guess is the definition of the difference for you well we've all been involved together in protests with a whole lot of people who go into the protest carrying rage that they as uh, Suze has said on a number of occasions today people haven't reflected on haven't processed and so the cause that they come for is just uh, a cause that they use to ventilate uncontrolled rage and that is counterproductive you know uh, wearing your Abbott t-shirts to uh, a protest um, uh, to a protest on behalf of refugees actually diverts from the issue because then the issue is how disrespectful you are not about what is the cause of refugees We had so, the, the same thing with the school um, kids protest because we, for anyone who's listening overseas, we had um, a lot of our high school students uh, going out on strike um, in protest of climate change issues and, and the inaction of our governments on climate change yeah. issues. Um, and, and what a brilliant thing that these kids are actually Fantastic. stepping into democracy in this way. Um, but the problem is then there was there was chants like SCOMO sucks, which yeah. is, you know, uh, and uh, our, our Prime Minister's name. And, and that on its own was enough to unravel a, a lot of the good message. And so this is, you know, yeah, yeah. where, where it, it becomes it becomes very tricky because it's seen as then packaged up as this is a disrespectful rabble. Yes. Um, and and it's, it's not, and we're missing the issue. The, the, the yeah, conversation right. gets diverted completely. Yeah. It also means we're falling for the trick of uh, othering mm. those yeah. who, we, who we actually want to convert literally to the way. Yes. I had to say at a rally a few years ago, you know, telling someone to do the impossible with one piece of their anatomy to another piece of their anatomy has not yet been shown to be a way of convincing someone to change their mind. <laughs> no. And so do we really want, do we either, do we, are we reveling in the fact that we yeah. are not them and so we're, we're actually fostering division or do we really want to create a society where the thing we're protesting for will happen? 
Mm. And so, you know, political rallies, they're great pieces of political theatre, but they really do need to have a sense of focus about being, projecting the issue. Yeah. And one of the things about public things is they can also be highlighted, uh, hijacked by the people who just go to rallies because they're angry, as David said. Yeah. They just want to vent and mm. they, they, they will protest about anything because they're just basically being anarchic. And the way is not anarchic. It is saying there is another way. Choose life, basically. Choose mm. life. This is the way of life and it's life-giving for you and life-giving for others. Choose this way and try to give the gift of the way to those who are your enemies. That's the other part, one of the other parts of Jesus' really radical teaching is about engaging with your enemies and praying for them. Mm. Not abusing them, not yeah, attacking right. them, trying to bring them into the way. And, and, and so in terms of the Beatitudes then, it's blessed are those who identify with the poor in spirit, who enter into the pain of those people um, empathically, who get angry about the injustice, but then channel that rage creatively, which leads on to the fourth beatitude is, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all the better translations of the word righteous there uh, are justice, who, who hunger and thirst for justice. So that you channel the rage creatively with restraint not by ventilating your uh, uh, aggression, but by actually uh, entering in to an ongoing, relentless pursuit of justice. Mm -hmm. You're really trying to find a way of doing justice to those people that you've come to know and love who are now your friends, who have been caused to suffer within the system that they are. And you, you're motivated now to channel that rage in a way that actually... Uh, is so much so that um, you're not attracted by the multi uh, <laughs> uh, hundred dollar stakes. You're, you you won't be satisfied with anything less than those people getting their fair share of society. So I suppose then this is starting to you know you can see the narrative of this forming now at, of a different way of being in the world oh, and how absolutely. linked these all are. Yes, you know, as we are exactly. halfway through the the beatitudes here, it is about. Um, I guess who you identify with, how you feel the compassion and empathy with them, you know, and, and then what you do with that, what yeah. you do with that, because, you know, the, if you're thirsting for justice and righteousness, if that's what your main passion is, then you won't just rage uncontrollably because that's not going to achieve it. But you, there's almost a, it's almost getting angry wisely. Um, yes, that's in right. In a sense. Yeah, that's right. Um, and well, that brings us to the fifth beatitude. What's that one? Which I think is really important. Blessed are the merciful. Because... Um, a lot of people engage in the struggle for justice in a way that's unmerciful. Mm. And yet the thing that's distinctive about the struggle for justice, according to Jesus, is that it's a struggle freighted with grace. And justice for Jesus is always showing, showing the same kind of mercy towards others as what you would want yourself, which is the point you were making. In this struggle for justice, even in the conflict, even when we're opposing people, we feel it's important to be merciful to the people who oppose us. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And this is one of the distinctives of the struggle of Jesus. This yeah. makes it qualitatively different 
this struggle, that it's it's a struggle for justice that is freighted with grace, where the minimal requirement of justice is that we show the same kind of mercy to others as what we would want ourselves. I mean, if we want to see justice in Australia, it's about treating Aboriginal people in the same way that we would want to be treated, or people seeking asylum uh, in the way that we would want to be treated if under the same kind of circumstances. That kind of merciful attitude is the foundation for treating people justly. What's uh, what, what definition of merciful would you give to... Because I know that mercy and merciful are words we use a lot without off sometimes knowing exactly on a practical front what we mean by that. What, how would you... What are some other words you might use there? What about you, Peter? What uh, synonyms would you think Ooh. of for the word merciful? <clears throat> well, I, I guess I would start with the antonym and, and realise that we tend to be merciless. And that, that is about being horrible, aggressive, divisive. So if we start from there and work backwards, then mercy is to work on ways to incorporate, to forgive, to be gentle, to actually... Um, uh, like a merciful response, um, say, towards Donald Trump, would be, I think, as as your dad Richard said in, an, in another podcast, it's, it's wanting to see the little boy and wanting to give him a hug. And that that is the merciful response. Mm. It's 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 really looking at the other as a vulnerable human being, and realizing that often the most vulnerable are the ones who we think are the most horrible. And so we actually have to develop a counter narrative about them too. Let me give you an example. We were involved in a protest in West End. Uh, a landlord had just thrown a woman out of his house. She had an intellectual disability and was uh, pregnant. Uh, we organised a protest at, outside this man's house um, to protest the way he was treating, you know, really um, a very vulnerable people. The cops came along said, what are you doing? We explained what we were doing. We said we weren't going to block any entrances or abuse anybody, but we just wanted to confront this person uh, with their actions. And the cops said, great, he's a bastard. I wish you all the best. Um, anyway, the, um, the point is, all through that night, he was threatening to boil hot water and come out and pour hot water over us. But we stayed there. We were gentle. We were respectful, but we stood our ground. And even though he didn't know it, we sent a team from our group that he didn't know were associated with us to support him and his family because we knew that he was under pressure, that he might ventilate that rage and take it out on his own family because he had a history of violence Mm. and domestic violence. So out of mercy to this man that we were opposing... Mm. We organised some of our number who he didn't know were associated with him to go and visit him to support him Mm. and his family in his time of duress. Now, see, that I think is really distinctive of the revolution of Jesus. And I think what's important about that story is that you wouldn't go and support that man unless you could also hold very lightly a sense of your own righteousness you have to be very aware of of the darkness that we all carry and to be able to sit with them and to say that and see him not as the other but as a a fellow human being and and the the, as a result of that so uh when he was taken to court for assaulting uh his tenant uh we made a petition to the uh, to the court that he not be um, fined, but he be sentenced to 20 hours of community work with our group. (laughs) (laughs) There's horrors everywhere. (laughs) It is, um, 
I, I, it's interesting you say that this is distinctive of the, the way of Jesus because you're right, almost every other revolution that I can think of exists to triumph over another. Mm. Um, you know, another is, is defeated, whereas this is more about um, helping another be transformed and, and they're, they're in too. Would that be fair? Um, I, I think it's, it's really important as Christians not to claim that we are unique. I mean, there's there the reflections of this wonderful way of operating in other traditions. Mm. However, this is distinctive of the way of Jesus, and I believe we can see echoes of that in other uh, traditions and 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 religions. Mm. Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, Jacques Ellul, uh, the famous uh, European theologian, actually said the the really distinctive thing about Jesus is not his nonviolence. That's secondary. It's his commitment to non-domination. And it was because he was committed to not dominate people that he was committed to non-violence. And and so this is significant about this whole movement of Jesus. You struggle for change. You're really committed to justice, to do the right thing, to see the right thing happen, but not at any cost. Mm. This is not not a cause for which... uh, any uh, you will uh, accept any means to the end the ends and the means have got to be the same so if it's about justice it's it's about showing the same kind of mercy to others as what you would want yourself and and that's what it's about it's not about winning the fight yeah. or dominating the other mm. it's about being true to who we are as human beings and encouraging everybody to realize their best potential mm. All right, so we have um, we we have that the most content, the most deeply content, are those who identify with the poor, mourn and feel their pain, uh, are angry wisely about it, seek righteousness and justice for them, are merciful and kind in that. And what what what's number six? Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I think that this is a really important uh, uh, call because, <clears throat> as an activist myself. I know how easy it is to exploit this process of protest just to promote my own image. So I'm actually exploiting the poor for my own PR. But Jesus says, if you want to be a part of my revolution, you identify with the poor in spirit, you enter into their pain empathically, you, you, um, you struggle, uh, you, you, you express that rage in a restrained way that channels the struggle into a struggle for justice that's freighted with mercy, and you do it with integrity, not for the publicity. Mm. It's about purity of heart, sincerity of heart, that this is what you're prepared to do when there's no one there to see or hear, when it doesn't get reported in the newspapers. This is what you do when no one is watching. And I've at various times had to say to myself, Dave, you are corrupting this process. You're not approaching this with purity of heart. And Jesus calls to purity of heart in this engagement. And so... And on occasion, I have stopped any public protest around issues that were dear to my heart to just do anonymous acts of service in my community to purify my heart so that I know that I'm engaged in this um, with sincerity. That it's not about the credibility, even let alone the publicity. It, I suppose the, a good illustration of that perhaps is the antithesis of it, 
which is when you see politicians going into marginalised communities for photo opportunities. And you, I, I remember hearing stories of a Prime Minister um, some years ago working in the media. I heard stories of the, the media who went along to capture it, who said the Prime Minister was um, drinking coffees on their phone, talking to their advisors, went over and met uh, with these marginalised people for... Uh, a total of two minutes when the cameras were rolling, got a bunch of photos, asked a few questions and was straight back in the limo and away again. So they, they looked, you know, if you watch the news that night, their image was they looked um, empathic, they looked kind, they looked caring, compassionate, but they were not pure of heart. But the point that I'm trying to make is we've got to look at ourselves, not just at others. This, is, this, is, yes, the, yeah. this revolution is not about changing others, it's about being the change. Yeah. We have to it's, uh, critically reflect on ourselves, which is the point Sue keeps mm. bringing us back to. Mm. This, is, this is why this is at the heart of it. The purity of heart mm. is at the heart of this issue. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, um, we're, we're on the home stretch now. Um, two of these left in, in Jesus' political revolution of how to be in the world. Um, and, and you can start to see also why his words were so controversial. I mean, as someone who grew up not really ever hearing about the the political side of Jesus, just the divine side of Jesus, um, it was hard to understand exactly why he got, you know, murdered because of his his statements and his challenging. When you unpack things like this, you can very easily understand why people in power wanted him gone. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. It's, it's pretty. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty challenging to their way of being. Um, what what is number seven then? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So um, the whole emphasis here is that in this struggle, working for change, working for transformation, uh, Jesus is saying it's got to be essentially nonviolent. That we uh, don't inflict violence on anyone else. And... Uh, if you're looking at the example of Jesus, um, this is characteristic of Jesus' struggle, that he advocated this kind of change, but uh, he, he did not inflict any violence on anybody else. He was not prepared to use um, uh, force to bring about change. I mean, uh, it's very interesting that uh, Marx ref- felt that the early church failed because it was not willing to use um, the the levers of state power to bring about change mm-hmm. right he he you know he he celebrated the the communism of the early church but he felt they failed because they didn't use state power to enforce that change on everybody else but look at the consequences of what doing that meant you know at least the totalitarianism uh, the, the truly um, distinctive uh, uh, characteristic of this transformation of Jesus is that we're prepared to enter into this struggle for change non-violently. And no matter how uh, violent other people are to us, we are committed to being non-violent ourselves. I think we've probably. I just am hearing um, how some of my friends would respond to that. I, I'm absolutely agree with everything you said, but they would also say, "Well, gee, the church has got its hands very dirty. The church has been um, the perpetrator of great violence over over history, you know." And I, I think that's where uh, I mean, you you when we're looking at Jesus and the behaviour on the cross, actually going to the cross, there's no sense of triumphalism, there is no violence. And and even when he's on the cross, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, which gets back to our merciful, our pure in heart. 
Um, but we have to also, and like that model is there, yet we've the church has failed through its history to to see that clearly. And uh, I think we certainly have to own honestly the church's complicity with violence, and that we have used empire, and that that it has been. Um, a great deal of of um, violence wielded in God's name on on in Christianity's side, and and this is the truly challenging thing of Jesus. Challenge Jesus challenges the militant uh, use of violence by all religious traditions, uh, and uh, not only uh, theological ideology but non theological ideology. Any ideology that is prepared to sacrifice people for the sake of the cause, this Jesus challenges that directly, and he certainly challenges Christians uh, who've used that kind of violence. That's why when I go to Europe, I find it almost impossible to pray in a cathedral where they've got symbols of. Uh, violence in the place, kings and queens and commanders. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have to flee from the cathedral to go to a park nearby to find a quiet place to pray because that the, the association of the church with war is, uh, is I believe, blasphemy. Mm. <laughs> I, I believe mm. what Jesus is saying mm. is, is only those that are peacemakers have the right to be called children of God. That's, I think he's saying it really specifically. Uh, and yet so many of our religious leaders today who claim to be uh, men and women of God uh, uh, are free to invoke uh, the name of God in a call to violence. And I think that is, uh, that's not only a war crime, but it's actually uh, it's a blasphemy. All right. So we have, blessed are those who identify with the poor and mourn with them, who are angry wisely for them and with them, seek righteousness and justice, remain merciful and pure in heart, and are peacemakers. I'm start, we're starting to get a real sense of a very different way to be in the world already. Um, but the last one, in some ways, is, is maybe the most challenging of them and all. And blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, what people like me need to remember is it says blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness not just blessed are those that are persecuted because sometimes we can be persecuted for stupidity Uh, (laughs) and and, and just because we're persecuted doesn't mean we're blessed you know what I mean Um, we could just be stupid so the, the the, the emphasis here is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the struggle for justice. A, a struggle for justice in which we're prepared to suffer but not inflict suffering no matter, regardless. That's what's distinctive about this. Now, often they say to, uh, often people um, say that the most stolen product in Kurong bookstops are the what would Jesus do wristbands. Oh, I love the irony of that, mm. that people would steal what would Jesus do wristbands. <laughs> now, but it does reflect this, this question, what would Jesus do in our today's world? This is the answer. If you look at these characteristics that are spoken of in the Beatitudes, this draws the perfect portrait of Jesus, who was filled with the spirit of compassion for the poor, entered into their pain empathically, uh, got angry but not aggressive, were channeled rage into a struggle for justice, a struggle that was actually merciful to everyone, even those who opposed him, who did it with purity of heart and who was committed to nonviolence and refused to inflict suffering on other people and was prepared to actually absorb the hostility of other people in his own suffering. I mean, this is a perfect portrait of of Jesus. 
Now, the challenging thing is what you said to start with, that the early Christians weren't called Christians. They were called people of the way because they followed in the way of Jesus. And this is the way of Jesus. This is the way we're called to follow Jesus, to follow in these footsteps. Hmm. And they exercised the faith of Jesus, not faith in Jesus. <laughs> that's, well, that's a, that's a really important distinction because to be a follower of Jesus, I think, means to say you have some intellectual belief in his divinity now. That, that's what it has come to mean mm. to most of the yeah, world. Yeah, it's been spiritualized. And, yeah, yeah. And why, why wouldn't it be when the church has aligned itself with the power structures? Yeah. You need to uh, neuter the Beatitudes, so you spiritualize everything, you spiritualize the crucifixion. Yeah, before you were saying, you know, you understand why Jesus got killed because he was a, he was a, a social mm. revolutionary. We've even spiritualized that, you know, that he Jesus was born to die because God needed him dead, you know, to pay the price. So we we even take that part of the narrative out of it instead yeah. of seeing it as a really human story of jesus the human one you know, the son of man better translated as the human one coming in making a difference causing the authorities to resist him and destroy him and for the whole god project to say i'm on his side which is what the resurrection is about um which is in the end, the ultimate validation of the Beatitudes as Dave is reading them. It's about following the way of Jesus, exercising the faith of Jesus, and having the faith in a God, have faith that God is good. Not faith in Jesus, but faith of Jesus. Mm. To live the way like he did. I mean, I come from an evangelical tradition, and for most of my life, I learned about the gospel about Jesus, but I didn't learn the gospel of Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven on earth, that we can actually embrace and that we can embody uh, through the power of the Spirit and we can actually uh, incarnate here um, in, in small, fragile, imperfect ways, but which are significant and can be really transformative. So I, I imagine, um, look, maybe there's some people who've heard the last hour of this conversation and have listed all of their items on Gumtree, ready to sell them and move <laughs> to India like, like you did, Dave. Maybe maybe some, you know, uh, uh, that on board immediately. But I imagine there's also a number listening to this, like myself, who wholeheartedly agree with the essence of this whole conversation, but find this such an overwhelmingly challenging um, uh, alteration to make in life. Um, you know, it, it is it is not just swimming um, against the tide, but you're in a rip and you're trying to swim against the rip mm. in our culture. It is it is a very, very hard thing to do. So, Well, I'd like to suggest four yes. simple ways forward for us. Yeah, I think that's, that would be... The first is I would love to rehabilitate the Beatitudes and see the Beatitudes read out in church every week. The challenging thing about that is we focus on liturgies exclusive of the Beatitudes. But the trouble is, most liturgies have no ethical content. We need to rehabilitate the Beatitudes, bring them back into the liturgies of our church because they are profoundly ethical 
uh, statements that challenge the way we live in the world. And we need to read them in our church regularly and listen to them being read so that we become familiar with the Beatitudes again. The second thing I think we need to do is that we need to uh, learn the Beatitudes off by heart uh, so that we um, these Beatitudes be- can become a part of us. If we hear them read over and over again, we listen to that, and then we, we, we learn these, these will become a part of us. And then the challenge is for us to actually live them. And I'm not saying we should try and do all of them at once. Why don't we just pick one and, and, and try it? You know, when my dad said, what do you want me to do? I, and I said, you know, I want you to stop preaching. Why don't we practice things? I said, why don't we start with the Beatitudes? Why don't over the next six months we just form um, a, a support for people who are wanting to practice the Beatitudes? Just practice one of them, you know, to be merciful. What would that mean to be merciful? And to constantly reflect on that together. The third thing I would like to see is to deconstruct and reconstruct church as a recovery movement. Um, we have AA, which actually helps us recover from socially unacceptable addictions to alcohol and drugs and so on. But I'd love us to help people recover from socially acceptable addictions, where we could meet not in AA groups, but in B groups, practicing the B attitudes, and where we meet together and say, hi, my name's Dave Andrews, I'm an addict. I'm addicted to power and wealth and status and violence to maintain it. But I want to overcome my addictions. huh? And, and in small groups, we actually help each other, support each other, um, and are accountable to each other to overcome those addictions and actually begin to experiment with practicing the Beatitudes. Last but not least, I'd like to see Christians engage with a broader community of all religions and none. Uh, looking at the Beatitudes as a way that we could live an alternative together, regardless of people's tradition. Uh, Not expecting people to become Christians in order to practice the Beatitudes, but for us to become Christ-like, regardless of our tradition, by practicing the Beatitudes together. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I, I think these Beatitudes can be a bridge between us and people of all religions and no religions. They're not co-opted into our religion. They're just encouraged to live in a way that deep in their hearts they want to live already and that's been nurtured by the best spirituality within their own tradition, which through our sharing these, we would name and encourage and honour ourselves. To people who you know, might, might have been listening to this maybe on, like myself, on a $2,000 iPhone, um, you know, living in a suburb where they haven't encountered anyone in real financial struggle or oppression for some time um, and, and feeling, as many people do when they encounter something significantly challenging, feeling a bit intimidated, maybe a little bit um, in denial, uh, a, a little bit scared even. What words of, uh, I guess, support, encouragement in this would you give to somebody who, who, to use your terminology, is so addicted to comfort and to, to, I guess, the plan A of this world rather than this plan B, is so addicted to being a part of this that they are a bit intimidated by even the thought of, of starting this? Oh, what do you think, sir? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a key in, in your recovery group idea there, Dave. I think there's, there's the, point, the point of recovery groups like AA is that you do it together. 
and you start to create spaces that are that you, there is no judgment that you can come together um, and if we can start it's a, it's a profoundly human way of being what, what the vision that's being cast here is, mm. is profoundly human so for for anyone to come along I think there's been a lot of things it, it's a strange thing there's things there's a hidden curricula of things you're allowed to share and confide about yes. in in our world and, and in our churches too and yet some of the most painful things are things that aren't allowed to be spoken. And we don't acknowledge this very often, um, that you can get care for some things but not others. And if you have a recovery kind of mentality, then you say, well, we're all in this boat together. How can we enter into this space where we acknowledge that our our weaknesses and we acknowledge the way that we are um, have have inappropriate attachments to things and and addictions? How do we actually help one another? So one is being, being together, I think. And and the second is sort of what I alluded to before that that um, God is gentle and this this is is as a slow process where as you are aware taking one of these beatitudes reflecting on it taking it into your day letting it walk through and the Spirit will lead you in ways that are gentle until you find that actually you don't mind giving that thing up you know that 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 is actually becomes a, 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 a it is a tra- you, your will can be transformed but it doesn't happen overnight. And it's, it's not as if you need to be a political activist tomorrow, I suppose is an important point, as you're saying there. This is a, this is a, a, a slower process as any addiction recovery um, in many ways. And uh, I have the feeling at the end of this hour, hour and 10 minutes, that this, is, it, it, this stuff is too important to just be lost to one podcast you sort of listen to once and think, well, there were some good ideas there. But actually, you know, this, this has to be something, you know, if, if people take it as that uh, to, to integrate into your life and to help do that dave i know you do have a website and some resources that people can look into yeah if they go to we can dot be dot be we can be um they'll, they'll find some a whole lot of materials they can download and uh, and engage with but i'd really like to finish uh, our, our session if i might with uh, by sharing an alternative serenity prayer you know we have the serenity prayer traditional serenity prayer that we pray in aa groups uh, lord grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference i think that's a great prayer uh, for b groups i suggest a slightly different version of the serenity prayer and if we want to be part of the beatitude revolution this is a prayer i suggest we all pray and it goes something like this Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Dave, um, Sue and Peter. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.